in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend, Brian Fry. How are you today? I am well. Good evening, everybody. Happy to be here for No Country for Old Men. This movie's the bomb. We're excited. Before we go any further, let me introduce our guest uh, from Austin, Texas. It is my good friend and yours, Matt Kirker. How are you? Hello. Hi. I'm doing well. How are you? Just excited to cover our movie today, No Country for Old Men from 2007. Today's movie seems like it excludes old men. And we here at the Retro Movie Roundtable are inclusionists, not ageist. So, uh, Matt, we'll start with you. What is one of your favorite old man acting performances? Dumbledore. I'm just going to throw it out. I'm just going to throw out the Harry Potter. I'm going to throw out the Dumbledore. I know they had to change actors, but... Uh, are, are you going to go Richard Harris Dumbledore or Michael Gambon Dumbledore or both? Uh, I, I think both of them captured the kind of uh, nice wink-wink, nudge-nudge old man vibe that Dumbledore gave off in those movies. You know, where he's like, he's straight edge, but he doesn't mind if you bend the rules. Wink, wink. I, uh, I, I think Gambon really captured a still spry old Dumbledore. I think if Richard Harris had uh, lived the entirety of the series, they would have had a harder time doing like Ministry of Magic duel with Voldemort with Richard Harris because he does look like a strong wind would blow him away. It's kind of up to the actor to create a distinction between what Dumbledore is and like any casual film watcher be like, who is that, Merlin? Just some old yeah. wizard? Right, right. Uh, I mean, and... and Crackpot old fool. We, we talk about other wizards. Like, I mean, Gandalf doesn't look like he should be able to hold himself in a fight, but he does. Um, oh, man. Well, but he's a mind. Well, we don't need to get into that motivation. We don't have to. That's not saying we won't. <laughs> uh, Brian, what's your favorite old man acting performance? Female. I went with uh, Maggie Smith. Uh, everything from Hook to Harry Potter and in between. And then uh, male actor, I, I had to go Jack Nicholson in The Departed because his his part in that is is so <laughs> freaking awesome. And make sure to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable episode on The Departed. I'm going to go with Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine. Okay, nice. I mean, to be fair, I really like every performance in that movie. And doesn't that make it easy for me to just flawlessly segue into our movie for tonight? No Country for Old Men from 2007, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin. Released in 2007, it grossed $74 million, and it placed 36 in the box office that year. Ahead of it was uh, Disturbia. I think of Disturbia. That was uh, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. Uh, yeah, Shia LaBeouf, uh, who was uh, stuck at home, 
and it placed ahead of, thank God, it placed ahead of Fred Claus. Um, I mean, everyone's favorite Christmas movie, Fred Claus. Uh, The number one movie that year, Spider-Man 3, uh, which, though I don't think many people's favorite Mm. Spider-Man, yeah, Mm. yikes. Mm. I mean, all right, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. We don't have to open that can of spiders. Our spider can, our spider men uh, have been such a high bar that uh, I think it's hard for people to put Spider-Man 3 up at the same bar as that. IMDb rating 8.1. The Rotten Tomatoes critic meter is at 93%, and the audience score is at 86%. Uh, This movie won Best Picture, won the Oscar for Best Picture. It also won uh, for Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Javier Bardem, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Also nominated for some other Academy Awards, Best Cinematography, which makes a lot of sense when you sit down and watch this movie, Mm -hmm. Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, Best sound mixing. Took down a, a couple Golden Globes as well and some BAFTAs. Um, we'll start with you, Matt. Uh, you had given us the list with this movie on it, and Brian and I were only so fast to choose No Country for Old Men to cover. Uh, had you seen it before? Uh, no, I hadn't, and that's why I put that on the list. I thought it was an easy toss-up. I heard a lot about this movie. I wouldn't say it was quoted, but it certainly was discussed very often. Um, around the time it came out and it just kind of I was a little young at the time that wasn't really my that kind of like heavy plotting thought-provoking kind of like movie wasn't really something that entertained me that much at the time so I'm, I'm I was happy to come back and revisit this one what about you Brian have you seen this one before oh yes yeah this was um this was a good year for movies uh 2007 had some hits Fred Claus man that's a banger that's a real banger what were your expectations for this movie you know considering the accolades that you previously listed and just kind of the general regard um my other friends um and colleagues that i've had who have spoken highly of this movie are people whose opinions i respect so i was definitely going in with a very critical lens brian you had seen it before but for the podcast, you know, we, we always approach it a little differently. Uh, what were your expectations coming in this time? It's nice when you get to do a movie like this and you just get to lean back and say, well, not everybody liked this movie, but the people who didn't are in a very small minority. It, it's very, it's, it's very rare for me and the Academy to be on the same page. So mm. I've got that going too. And, uh, yeah, I, this is, this is, uh, on a very short list of top three movies that were every bit as deserving of best picture. You know, I didn't realize until putting my notes together for tonight's podcast that it was a best picture winner because I wasn't paying attention to that stuff. You know, sometimes there are movies that like that people generally like, but you know, that maybe the level of art isn't quite there. I think I was just talking with someone yesterday about boondock saints about how it was popular to watch, but uh, not quite at the the same level as this. But Matt, did you enjoy it? And do you feel like it holds up? I absolutely enjoyed it. But on the topic of holding up, and and don't worry, I'm not going to say that I think it held up poorly, um, but I think what it suffers from and what a lot of media suffers from when you go back and watch it it is kind of like a... uh, 
they originate an idea that then pop culture gets saturated with. And if you miss the origin and you're only there for the saturating part, the original doesn't feel as special. But there was like a, a, a series of kind of like dramatic movies that the director would just kind of like end on an ambiguous note and kind of like, you know, they're, they're dropping the mic and walking away. And, and sometimes I felt like that was almost just a shortcut to add false depth to something now that is not the case with no country for old men but it, it certainly it didn't probably feel as poignant as it may have seeing it for the first time in 2007 yeah i think you can probably relate that same feeling to music if you're the the first artist to do a something particular and then so much so that i mean this actually wasn't the idea in my head but like you know we, we in jazz like the count basie ending and then 600 right. other songs do that ending and doesn't make the first time that was done seem special. I think that's kind of what you're saying is that this yes. this was uh, trend setting in a way. And if, if you are the trend setter, do you then get grouped into other films like it? Um, yeah, and some, sometimes it's not done as well. But yeah, what about, what about you, Brian? You feel like this holds up. It's weird to say that it's over 15 years old. Uh, I'd say that's the the weirdest part for me is just how long this has been around. Um, this is actually something I wanted to ask you guys. This is, this movie has a very, very rare thing for me in film where I have a hard time when I think about no country for old men, I have a really difficult time not having there will be blood creep into my mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I felt like they were this, this two headed monster that came out this year and, you know, they were both vying for the you know, same awards. They both have this really dark undertone to it. They both had phenomenal acting. They were both excellent movies. And I, I, they're almost like linked in a really odd way to where, you know, you can't think of one without thinking of the other two. And uh, I'm not sure if I have any other movie that's like that. You know, that's actually, yeah, that's a really interesting point you bring up. Um, and it was, yeah, they, they, I think they are very tied in my mind because they have that, that, you know, settings very similar, but they have that, that gritty plotting vibe with these punctuations of extreme violence. Right. right. And Just in, and very both, eerie feel. Yeah. And in both films and, you know, the cinematography for these were incredible. Right. Um, in both films, you kind of get caught up in these moments where you're almost thinking to yourself, like this, like the shot will linger on one thing for like maybe like one extra second or the music will change slightly. And it just gives you it, it, in your mind, you're like, this has more significance than maybe like I'm realizing the, the, the type of films that really engage your brain and force you to try to analyze everything that's being presented to you. The amount of time they linger on shots is something that maybe we'll talk about more, but it, it does make this movie stand out and um, or if if not stand out, uh, the attention paid to exactly what it is you're looking at, um, even for the bit characters that have three lines. Uh, it's the amount of time that, that, that every little minor character kind of matters in that way. Um, I was just thinking the way that you have a, a connection with this movie and there will be blood. Uh, Maybe two years before, or maybe right in that same area. Brian, you might be able to help me out with this. What was it? I think it was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward. Coward Robert Ford. D when did that come out? Do you know that off the top that's, of your head? Yeah, that's this year. Um, so yeah. like I was saying, there there is a, a heft 
of very deep movies. Now I I'll just shout a couple out here and you may disagree with some of them, but there was a, there were a lot of great films this year, you know, between there will be blood, no country for old men. You also had atonement. You had end of the wild. You had uh three ten to Yuma. You had um, American gangster came out this year. Um, as far as like the, the Coen brothers with what they did in a row, no Country for Old Men, the very next year, Burn After Reading, a favorite of mine. Fantastic. Now, I actually don't know A Serious Man, but then, then they follow with True Grit. So in a two-year period, we've got these, these three movies. And um, while True Grit definitely falls into that category a little bit easier, Burn After Reading kind of slams the door shut, or slams the case file shut, I guess, um, with, with a, hey, this movie has ended. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's kind of neat to think about uh, like almost the, the trend set of the ambiguity. We're just going to let it sit and just resonate. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wow. Uh, just hearing that list, that is quite an incredible year. It was 2000, or 2007. Was that the year of the neo-Western? Yeah. Was that really the dawn of? It probably started it. Like you said, True, True Grit was the next year. So it was definitely something that kind of brought some of that back to the forefront. And I actually, I hadn't even mentioned my favorite from this year in terms of maybe That's not favorite, I mentioned it. one Fred of my Claus. favorite. Yeah. Uh, Eastern Promises was oh, this year. Uh, yeah. And I, I love that movie. Saw <laughs> like it in theaters. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, it's just such a, such a good year for film and especially really gritty film. Like you know, Gone Baby Gone was this year too. Wow. So yeah. it just, yeah, it was just a really good year. Uh, for this sort of stuff and it was a good year and we've got a good podcast ahead but before we get to it we are going to take a quick advertisement break when we come back from that break brian is going to spoil the movie he's going to give a plot summary so before listening to that you probably want to see this movie because uh, you should be as excited as we are to cover it so we'll see you after the break Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. And we are back covering No Country for Old Men. This is your final warning. We are about to go into a plot summary for this movie. You really should watch it before listening to this. So go watch it. Come back. Uh, Brian, take it away. Llewellyn is a Vietnam vet and welder of all things that can be welded and unhappy with his lot in life. So unhappy that when he stumbles across a drug deal gone bad, he helps himself to the money. Two million, in fact. Ed Tom Bell is a sheriff who feels that the world has fallen to hell and laments the old days where a man didn't have to wear a gun. Anton is a hitman who is off his freaking rocker and in the worst way. He's also been hired to find the missing money and in doing so, leaving a trail of bodies along the way. 
Llewellyn has a crisis of conscience and returns to the scene to give one of the shot men water that he had so desperately asked for upon their first meeting. While there, he falls into a trap and starts a movie-long chase, pitting the three main characters tracking and evasion chops up against one another. At one point, the money man hires Carson Wells, a competitor of Anton's, to track him down and kill him too. Carson is adept at finding both the money and Llewellyn, who have evaded Anton all along, but falls into a trap of Anton's and is killed. While this is occurring, Llewellyn is killed by the other side of the drug deal's men. Uh, Anton is in a non-fatal but fairly catastrophic car accident, and Ed Tom retires from the police department, having failed to keep Llewellyn alive. A very long chase. I think you had it right. It's a movie-long chase. It's not a heist. The deal has already happened and ended in the desert between some runners carrying the Mexican brown dope into Texas and a buyer. Now, there's some mystery, I think, to how things were supposed to go, Um, and it ends up in Llewellyn Moss's hands. Uh, He is hunting one morning, hunting pronghorns out in the desert, and he just comes across it. Uh, there's a whole lot of questions. They're, they're wide open with this movie of the things to talk about. But I want to first start with uh, the, the plot and how th- each of these characters is like a strand of a braid that comes together. You could look at this movie from the point of view of, I suppose the protagonist is Ed Tom. Would you, would you say that it's, it's Ed Tom Bell starting the story and ending the story? But we really follow Llewellyn Moss's journey with the money, with his wife and his wife's family. We've got Llewellyn Moss, Anton Chigurh, Carson Wells. Side actors include the, like the Mexican side who's hunting down Llewellyn Moss. We've got the American side of the deal, a sort of figureheaded by Stephen Roots, um, up in a big skyscraper. Uh, we've got Carla Jean. And then we've got the law enforcement side, of which we see several individual actors, uh, Sheriff Ed Tom, and then uh, his deputy, Wendell. We've got a lot of threads here. I'll start with Matt. Can you pick a thread to, that like stood out? Like, Is it Llewellyn Moss's story that we are following the most? Uh, or, or is it something about uh, maybe Sheriff Ed Tom's and law enforcement's just trying to get their hands on the situation? Uh, there's there's a lot of threads here. Which thread kind of stood out? You know, this is actually something I struggled with, kind of considering the movie afterwards, where it, it almost feels like um, Ed Tom is supposed to be the audience surrogate, right? Um, especially since cool. um, almost all of his actions throughout the movie, he never encounters either of the other two major players until one, Luel is dead, and he actually never f- meets Anton at any point in time. And you see him sit so many times in the same place that Anton was, and they line up the shots in the same ways where it's like they're standing in each other's shadows. They're seeing what the other has seen in the uh, exact same perspective. Yeah, I like what the- you said about like, like Ed Tom being audience surrogate, that... 
He's catching up to this. Yeah, well, and it fits very well um, back to kind of what you said at the beginning. It's the strategy of it's in media res, starting in the middle of the action. It's one of the most engaging kind of plot devices um, that's used and has kind of, I think, gotten quite popular in a lot of media these days because it does leave you with those questions. Um, and it's always fun to allow the audience to maybe imagine how things went down, right? Like, there's a fair amount of supposition, right, when uh, Ed Tom and his deputy sheriff, right, show up to the location of the shootout. And they're sitting there, and the deputy's kind of, like, guessing, right, about what happened. Where it's like, okay, money went wrong. Like, okay, mm -hmm. hold on. These two guys in suits, like, are different. Like, they're kind of, like, just going around and... and they offer the evidence, but never truly put together like what happened, um, which is going to be a common theme for the film. It, it's not treating the audience like children that they need their hands held, but it is cool to think about like uh, they are kind of helping us wrap this this up uh, about that chase. Uh, did you have anything to add about about that uh, from sort of law enforcement side here? I uh, I really enjoy Tommy Lee Jones's kind of thoughtful introspection i mean he's really what what makes the 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 point of no country for old men um his introspection is you know in one hand you have him thinking back on you know his life and how it's pertained to to his job and and what's happening currently and then you have anton's call it cool insanity and then you have Josh Brolin's pragmatic, practical kind of snark. And I, I feel like in, in a movie where the three main characters literally share no scenes with one another, I thought that was a really cool, like, three-headed hydra just moving on down the road. That is cool. And, and probably something that until you guys said it, I hadn't ever even as many times i've watched it hadn't considered that they don't meet uh because they do talk about one another to each other they're not ignorant of one another it's very much on everyone's mind uh it makes me think the only interaction is a phone call there's a phone right. call and then i guess you know excluding the the shootout that anton and the Wallen have right right but even then they never and especially how that's filmed they never truly see each other. They're shooting from underneath right. vehicles at each other. They're shooting like around. They're waiting behind doors and shooting through doorways. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, to, to your point, Dustin, I mean, the opening narration is Ed Tom, and then we never actually see his character. We don't meet his character until almost a third of the way into the movie, hmm. right? Um, so, and that adds kind of to the air of, I don't quite want to say mystery. I'm not sure what to call it. The, the the air of suspense as almost the whole movie, it keeps you guessing. It's like, when are they going to interact? And kind of, you know, the there is that classic Western trope of the showdown at the end of the month or at the end of the movie, right? The good and bad, the ugly, the three finally meet. And so you almost spend the whole movie waiting, waiting for, for them to meet and it doesn't happen. And that in itself is a fun device, I think, that the movie uses. I would say it's atmosphere. I think I think what you're looking for is atmosphere. It was a very interesting atmosphere that they cultivated for it. 
the idea that we, we're so close to them interacting with one another, and they interact with each other's like close peers or uh, relationships. Anton has a similar, almost befuddled interaction with the motel manager, talking about which room he wants to get. Uh, where they're like, point at the map, tell me which room you want. Anton speaks to uh, Carson Wells, and Carson speaks to Llewellyn. Sheriff Ed Tom speaks to Carla Jean, but Car- like the- these things are so, they're, they're just one degree away, uh, which makes you think they're closer than they really are. Uh, but yeah, it's not until you guys said it that it's 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 pretty apparent when you think back. They don't meet each other, which is why it's such a grand chase. Yeah. Uh, you you can't. There's no visual in the distance that like we're close. And this movie does end with Sheriff Ed Tom retiring and sitting, having coffee with his uh, with his wife um, Loretta, who is uh, you know he's talking about some dreams. And he does retire um, and. If you think about the opening lines, uh, there's some stuff that just doesn't make sense to him. I'm I'm loathe to say like the world has passed him by because he is really keen. Sheriff Ed Tom is sharp, um, and they almost include his deputy Wendell to show the audience how sharp he is. Right. But eventually we get to the point when when he's uh, talking to his, uh, I guess, his uncle, or uh, I'm trying to think that the old man towards the end, Ellis, perhaps his name is. Oh yeah. yeah. When he's making, the, he's just saying, "I just don't get it anymore." Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I I agree. Um, I think that's that's really what the film's getting at is his his greater and greater incapacity to wrap his head around what's happening in the world of crime around him at this point. But I'll also say that I feel like his slow i don't want to say slow is and slow on the uptake but his measured um way of addressing things is also something that's missing with the younger generation and it, it it's to that their detriment yeah like well, it, it, he he is so calm and measured about how he is approaching this case and they juxtapose that with Wendell being with him who is anxious to move forward. Every detail that Wendell sees, Ed Tom has already seen it. He just hasn't exclaimed it with excitement yet. The difference in the shells, the, the, uh, I, I believe I texted Matt today, uh, the, the, uh, the thing about, uh, what do you want to put on the radio? Uh, searching for man who has recently drank milk. Like there's, there's a collectedness that you're saying. And he does speak to that other sheriff in El Paso where the, that guy's saying, like, I never thought I'd live to see the day where kids have bones yeah. in their nose. Yeah, and, and blue hair. And yeah. yeah. And there are a few moments where I feel like you're starting to see perhaps the where he does begin to fall behind. Because he makes a comment, and he's talking about whenever they slaughter cattle nowadays, and they use just a little air compressor bolt that goes in and out, kill them, they don't even know what's happening. And this is after he's been trying to surmise the very iconic weapon that Anton uses. And I don't know if that was so much of a, I don't know if that was supposed to be like a nod where perhaps he is aware that, that that is being is what is being used or it's something that has just kind of like 
percolated in his brain and he hasn't he doesn't make that connection though he says that line and you expect the next thing for him to be like by jove i got it i don't right yeah and and that doesn't happen and it almost leaves it up to his like did he know or did he not well, that's the res- that's the end of a story he's telling Carla Jean, Jean yeah. uh, about uh, he he's trying to he's trying it's a, a poor job of trying to comfort her right uh, he, he he understands he did a bad job but yeah I, I don't think there was supposed to be a eureka moment uh, I I think it was just clever that he is aware that these tools exist because I'm not exactly sure if he uh, if it's that important that law enforcement is befuddled by the idea of wait there was an entry wound but not an exit wound yeah right i don't think that was the step he needed to catch up i mean i think it almost speaks to you know anton has a very cold view of human life right and seems to have no point killing people right and almost indiscriminately it's uh it's as if they are to him livestock and hmm. Ed Tom, on the other hand, he could only conceive of using an air compressor on livestock to kill them because he can't conceive seeing humans in that cold and detached way. You know, kind of speaking to the themes in the film of him not being able to wrap his mind around the drugs and the violence and this new wave of crime and not being able to solve problems without a gun, right? Right. And then we we get to the point where uh, it is time to to call it, and um, we don't exactly get a resolution from the sheriff's side. Um, we know that it ends sort of gangland uh, with the Mexican side of the drug deal uh, catching up and taking Llewellyn down, and I guess that's where I'll, I'll maybe transfer over to Llewellyn's story. Uh, Brian, I actually find myself every time I rewatch, I find myself almost putting myself in Llewellyn's shoes. Like, what do I do if I stumble into this situation? Uh, do you do that at all, or what else can you say about Llewellyn's uh, plot thread? It absolutely drove me nuts that at no point in time, over having a giant briefcase of money, that he didn't check it for some sort of transmission device. And then, moreover, you notice that when he takes the money out and finds the device. It's a giant stack of $1 bills. Like, you're telling me that didn't stand out. It's supposed to be $2 million. That's got to be the only bundle of $1 bills in the entire thing. Well, I think the in order- front of it had like an 100 or something, right? It's only when he's kind of like thumbing through that he notices the ones are coming up. Perhaps I have that detail wrong. Um, well, even but it so, did I'm infuriate saying, me, though, that yes, at no point, like he only looked check at the, money. the top bundle of the money. <laughs> Like, you didn't even look at the backsides, like, nothing like that. Um, Like, that kind of money doesn't, you know, fall into your lap without, you know, some safeguards. I I think the first thing you do is flip through and at least touch every single bill in that thing. I I think the first thing I do is I remove it from the case it's in and put it in something else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He does a lot of careful things. Brian, he does a lot of mm. careful things aside from checking the money. Um, how is it watching his carefulness? He's not exceptional in terms of brains or even bra- He's not a superhuman, aside from the idea that he is a Texan. Uh, and so there are certain <laughs> skills and certain things about him that maybe not every American is. But uh, like he, he is pretty careful. So there's a transmitter. Obviously has to be within range of something. He sends his wife off. 
there's there's just there's so many mistakes he makes. Like they literally could have gotten in a car and driven straight north to Canada, and Together. no one would have ever found him. Yeah, no one would have ever found him. Well, I think uh, that that leads us to, and let, let's think about how the the plot unfolds because we're still maybe in like the third, the first third of it is the the chase really ramps up for Llewellyn when the one man behind the wheel of the busted truck uh, says to him, "Agua, por favor, agua." But he 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 says to his wife uh, when he's up really late, filling a, a milk jug with water. Llewellyn, what are you doing? Uh, I forgot something. So he's got this moral conscience that's bringing him back out in the middle of the night to the scene of the crime. And he even admits that it's a bad that idea. It's dumb, yeah. Yeah, and there's no way that that guy's still alive. Yeah, well, and like, it's interesting because when they introduce his character, he's so dispassionately cold towards the same man. Walks, he, he ain't got no damn agua. Yeah, he's yep. looking around, sees the guy, doesn't care that he's bleeding out what takes the gun and the clip like right out of his, right pocket, out of his pocket and then yeah. is just like kind of moving on. That part makes sense to me from a certain point of view that you don't want to leave a potential enemy with, you know, the guy's still alive. Oh, so of course, you, right? Yeah, but I mean, it is you're a not going to leave a loaded gun behind approach. you. If you found a man bleeding out begging you for water would your first thing be like oh i better disarm him and then case the joint right this is part of his carefulness let's talk about what happens immediately after this um he begins tracking like if i i I know he mutters to himself a little bit but uh he begins going in a direction all right well if you're gonna take a break you take a break in the shade Mm -hmm. and he finds the tree and he has both the scope on his rifle and also, I think either he had a pair of binoculars or he took a pair of binoculars from the vehicles. Um, but he takes out his watch. It's like 1140. And he looks through the binoculars at the tree. He sees that there's a man. His boots are sticking up. He sees that there's a man in the distance. And he doesn't approach right away. He waits. And, the you know, a little movie magic makes it quick for us. But he waits like 20 minutes until around noon. To go and see, you know, who this guy is. The first thing he does is he he moves the case away from, I believe that man's full dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then he kicks the gun away from him, puts the gun in his, uh, like, in his pants. And so th- this guy isn't extraordinary. He's not, um, you know, he's no Sherlock Holmes. He, he He is just being careful about this. And then... Instead of making the decision to drive north to Canada, comes back. He is thinking about his wife, but he does want to take care of her, I think. Yeah. Well, and I almost think that harkens back to that kind of, you know, it is almost in a reference of that lost generation returning back from Vietnam and having these feelings that they, oh, that's a good point. That they can't express, right? And so many men are coming back like broken and dispassionate, maybe a little separate from the world. So, and, and, you know, we have no idea what the timeline is. Perhaps they were married before he left, and so he still has that love, but it's just harder for him to be more engaged emotionally as a human because he has so much scarring from what happened in Vietnam or maybe, you know, they met afterwards. And Right. All we really um, know about uh, how uh, her mom feels about him is that she had two words when I met Llewellyn, no and good. <sighs> the mom. 
<laughs> that he puts her on a bus to go that way. He he also is smart enough to know that uh, they are going to be looking. I guess I I skipped ahead. He goes back to the crime scene, and then there's the chase. Uh, an awesome, a visual pre-dawn chase uh, of him running away. From Diving into the water. He does get shot. Getting chased by a dog, which is some fun imagery because it was finding that stray dog that led him to the shootout in the first place, right? Yes. So it's like, uh, I, I absolutely hate it when they kill dogs on movies, though. It's rough. Yep, it's rough. I, I, I was just like, uh we, we actually just last week were talking about how firearms function when they're wet or through water. Um, and he does... I think that just the small amount of time that they take, he takes his boots off before swimming in the in the river mm-hmm. uh, to get away from that dog. Like, smart to show us that. He has the wherewithal to know that. Then he swims across, he reaches the bank, that dog keeps up. And uh, before he, you know, uses the firearm, just, what does it take, five seconds? Yeah, he, like, takes everything out. He's, like, blowing into the gun to, like, blow the water out. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't we don't like that sound or that, that imagery, really, but uh, the, the idea that he knows that that's what would need to be done. Um, he, he knows to uh, go, you know, find the, the things he needs in order to continue. We do get uh, a little bit of, shopping in when he when he knows he's on the run i guess at this point he is told uh, carla jean to go visit her mom mm-hmm. um but yeah th- then then i guess we're introduced at the motel we, we, we kind of get our first glimpse of sugar in fact i i normally don't even refer to him as anton uh, to me he's sugar anton sugar sugar <laughs> i did very much enjoy that little exchange yes uh Brian, tell, uh, what's your? You said a cool insanity earlier. Seeing Javier Bardem's villain character on screen is very special. It's something that I've always enjoyed about that level of psychotic in a movie where they really get to play with dialogue uh, at a high level, and you know this movie is a perfect example of it. And his demeanor that he he doesn't crack i mean his focus <laughs> and his oddity i even when he's in the car accident he's got a bone sticking out of his arm he's giving a kid a hundred dollars for a shirt to make into a tourniquet you know and obviously those two are witnesses i mean he you know i think if just some hack had written this part you know it would have been you know shoot the kids shoot you know a psychopath, a psychopath, right? No, his his is so focused. It's it's so even mindedly like, why are you going to kill me? Is it because I told him I was going to? He's an awesome character, and Javier Bardem, with um, other things he's done since then, I I would say if no matter what he did before, uh, it had to be this performance that really shot him into most Americans' uh, TV sets and mindsets. Uh, th- what you just described is I think the cruelest thing he does in the movie. When he says to Carla Jean, I gave my word. Because what does Carla Jean say? She says what they all say. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do this. I oof, I love that. Um, that also has, you know, the very wonderful line of, you know, it's like, I got here the same way this coin did. Right? Right. Um, 
you know, very good callback to... Well, let's rewind to that. Yeah. Tell us about the... Because the, this... When you watch this movie, Matt, you you were the you're the one that hadn't seen it before. So your introduction to Anton Chigurh is uh we didn't even mention this. Strangling that other deputy. Straight up, yeah. Let's talk about that scene. This isn't this is starting off the movie. Cold, calculated. Uh you see him do the kind of acrobatic move. Yeah, no, it is the most Cormac McCarthy entrance um, of any character, right? It's almost this supernatural, visceral, primal, man-versus-man brutality. Absolute brutality. So brutal that even his own wrists are wounded in the process of killing this deputy. Um, And it lasts a while. Credit to the movie, you know, uh, a lot of movies get this wrong and some similar things like that where it's like to suffocate someone takes a tremendous amount of time to truly suffocate someone to death and they make you kind of live out every agonizing moment of that like during that opening scene uh, you see his struggle and his effort like he he's he is he's He's putting it he's all putting in this. work yeah like it's a lot of power like while he is dispassionate as a character he has no problem with like exerting himself um it's almost like the only things that are human about him are these brutal and primal parts of being human oh that's cool because everything else is so cool calculated and like alien so foreign to our normal morality let's fast forward a little bit back to his interaction with the texaco clerk this is our first bit of dialogue i don't know if menace in conversation has ever really been shown in the same way that it was when he's talking to that that Texaco clerk. And he's just clueless. It almost reminded me of like of a bit from, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where two characters are like verbally jousting, but one of them isn't even aware. Right. And the other one is just almost talking in circles around here. Um as as, you know, uh Chigurh. Um, is sitting there and explaining this like you have no idea what you're talking about do you right like he finally gets to that point in the conversation where it's this almost foreboding vaudeville routine right it's who's on first but you're you're who's on firsting for your life he's he's trying to get the clerk to realize his the danger he's in and he just doesn't yeah you live in that house out back what time do you close around dark I could come back then. Why would you come back then? Yeah, right? <laughs> like, the world isn't ready for this intense villainy. Yeah. Um, and he is uh, ready to provide. So far, we have brought up my best shot and my best scene. So I'll just... <laughs> well, uh, then we'll I, I've, I, I've been intentionally mute through all of this. <laughs> so, like, back to back. I was like... <laughs> so, so he... Uh, he does make his way to the hotel, and we get our first, though they do not interact directly, uh, we get our first uh, potential interaction. I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the interactions in this movie and the just the, I'll say, perfect amount of comedy sprinkled into this movie. Tommy Lee Jones was the best casting choice for this kind of comedy that you're talking about. <laughs> It's almost like British-inspired, like, dryness of it, where it's like the comedic fact is that it's absurd, 
and Tommy Lee Jones delivers these kind of absurd things in an amusing way. There are comedic it, moments in the film. Um, I, I I know this is happening in Texas, but uh, it, it's something that I put akin to colloquialisms from Southern gentility. Like that's what I really like about him in this is these these vocal speech patterns that he has and and the you know it's uh, I, I'm only showing you one leg of a four legged chair. It's just it's one of those things where it's like he's full of these these things that that I'm frankly only used to older Southern people <laughs> telling me. And, uh, you know, uh, right. and he's got a lot of them. Um, right. It dates yeah. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Loretta asks something about like, uh, you know, you think you think the department will ever pay for using my horse. And Tommy Lee Jones says something along the lines of probably might could like as right. just very like, oh, this is just how he talks mm-hmm. uh, or or little little verbal jousting with Ellis at the end. Like, right. How do you know it was me? Uh, deduced it when you walked in. Yeah. Okay, who else would be driving your truck? You can't see my truck from there. One of the cats told me. Like, like th- this. Yeah, yeah. It is easier for. It's men. like I, I, I was a cop, dumbass. Like that's <laughs> yeah. Every everything he says to to Wendell uh, comes out as I I'm your boss. <laughs> right. like, I'm I'm good at my job. I'm I'm the opposite of you. <laughs> Wendell's about <laughs> to enter Llewellyn's trailer. Ed Tom tells him, pistol up and out. And Wendell looks back at him. Well, what about your gun? I'll be right behind you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, hey, I'm a shoulder size, shoulder size 12. Uh, you got boots? Uh, yeah, I got them. You got socks here? Only white. Well, those are the only kind I wear. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, you got to have a clever response to almost everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carson Wells has, a clever, has clever responses. I love Woody Harrelson. All right, let's oh, take it. Yeah, so, I'll watch. I'll watch anything with Woody in it. You know, so I took notes right as I was watching it and had some, you know, impressions and stuff. And the only thing I have about Woody Harrelson, and I have an exclamation mark afterwards, and is written in much larger script than everything else, was just surprise Woody Harrelson because when <laughs> yeah. he appears, I just wasn't expecting him, and I was indeed delighted. It's always fun to see what role he's going to be playing when he appears on screen. He's one of those actors that it's just you're. It's kind of like an exciting like present. It's like, oh, what are you gonna do? This will be entertaining. And it, he has his own brand of swagger that I really appreciate because it is a very specifically Woody Harrelson piece. His cockiness doesn't come from a normal person's like, I'm handsome. I'm brilliant. I, you know, his is his very own specific, like, well, I get it, but you know, I'll still smack you around. Like it just, there's something uh, about Woody Harrelson. that's just, well, he's irreverent, but you're in on the joke with him. Like he's irreverent towards like, it's like that kind of attitude where it's just like, this is all like, none of this is all really important, but like, we both understand that. So we can enjoy the song and dance, right? He is both what you expect from Woody Harrelson as an actor. And I think he's gotten a lot of work older. Like we're not talking about like white men can't jump Woody Harrelson. Right. Uh, We're we're talking about from here till now. Um, I would say maybe the character of, Tallahassee from Zombieland was written after his portrayal of Carson Wells. Yeah, um, and he—you mentioned some True Detective, right? He, is, yeah, is he, 
Yeah, so so like uh, he's almost like evolved into this new role, um, and it's so malleable between different uh, movies. But he's also portraying a very interesting character, Carson Wells, who comes from this world that we don't know a lot about. Um, I'll talk about it a little bit. So we've got two sides to this drug deal. We've got the Mexicans who provide the drugs, and we have the buyers with the money who keep the transponder in there. I'm uncertain about Stephen Root, like like the uh, the man in the skyscraper, brings in Carson Wells. Would you? Would it be fair to say Carson Wells is a bounty hunter? Yeah. It it uh he's definitely introduced as like a counterfoil of he is a badass and perhaps even superhuman similar to uh, Shigur, but he's well sane quote unquote. What I want to say about that is that it, this is another thing that I think that uh, Sheriff Ed Tom is realizing is that people like Anton Shigur and Carson Wells exist in this world. Mm-hmm. I can't even mm-hmm. measure that. Yeah. Now, maybe I misread this, and it's been long enough since I've read the book that I don't remember it all that well. But it's my understanding that the man in the skyscraper hired Anton initially. Yeah, yeah. And as he killed too many people, he hires Carson to go after him and find the money if he can, but definitely stop Shigur. Yes, 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 yes. So, so it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, you let the psychopath half first crack at it. He's out of control. Bring in the, I think they mentioned he was a Vietnam Colonel. So obviously a a skilled operator to come in and he does, he does what Anton couldn't do. He, he finds Llewellyn in a hot second. He finds the money. He like completely, I mean, almost clairvoyantly finds both of them. And in a completely different tack than Anton takes, he's like, oh, man, I can even let you keep some of the money. I mean, you know, he's like, hey, I'm just trying to end this and, and get my you know money and then I'm done. I would say one of the least satisfying moments of this movie is how easy, easily he then falls victim to Anton. Yes. Um, I, I, it never sat right with me. I, it doesn't sit right with me either, and I do like it. Almost as a gut punch um, because right. and, you know, another thing, you know, talking about Wells versus Anton, Anton wears almost all black. Wells, on the other mm. hand, almost an all, all white. white. And they both have this dispassionate view of the job, right, where it's uh, at some point to Anton, it becomes more than just a job, right? Right. He yep. promised Llewellyn that he was going to go kill his wife. Like it, it, it becomes something greater. Um, and even when he and Wells kind of have their confrontation in the hotel room, he's like, no, 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 I will have the money brought to me. <laughs> like, right. I don't like, right. it will be brought to my feet. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you don't know that to a certainty. I do know that. For a certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, An- Anton's game is greater than the job. Maybe it's not shown like to the, greatest degree but one of the one of the things like did he have to reach his silence pistol out to shoot that crow on the bridge no we do have a confrontation between carson wells who is also of this world someone brought in as a professional a foil 
perhaps to Anton, but operates in his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was saying how he he's very we'll much, look into awesome, but very much a particular type of character um, who remembers. He says it out loud. I remember dates and names. Last time I saw him was November twenty eighth. Um, I counted the floors on the way up. You're missing one. <laughs> right, 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 right. Who, in that very same room, we also have uh, Anton Chigurh when he takes out the man in the skyscraper. The other guy sitting in the chair, I think, asks him, are you going to kill me? And Anton Chigurh's response was, well, that depends. Do you see me? Uh, Matt, you had something interesting to say about Anton as like a representation. Um, I mean, in a very classic McCarthy fashion, Anton is the symbol of death, right? Of indiscriminate death in this film. And he but is it indiscriminate? Well, I mean, and that's the that's the thing, right? You almost can never truly pin what Anton's motivations are, right? There's the moment where the woman is denying, telling him where Llewellyn's, you know, works and stuff like that, <laughs> right? And you could see this tension where, like, you you expect him to kill her. And then you hear the toilet flush, and, like, there's another person there. And I don't think that's something that would dissuade him. I think he would just kill both of them. But for some reason about it, he's just like, ah, I don't care. Like, he doesn't offer her ultimatum or a coin toss. Like, he just leaves. Um, so it, it's indiscriminate death in the sense of you can never understand truly his motivations and i think that's what makes him a great symbol for death because it's that great unknowable thing we no one knows when they are going to die right um it just it happens to you and sometimes death passes you by yeah narrowly that's cool but you survive right um and you it, it sometimes you realize it and sometimes you don't Right. Sometimes you're the old man in the gas station who can't even wrap himself, his mind around (laughs) the danger that just went right by him. Um, And then the fact that Anton is so implacable. Right. He's he's the constant. He's the slow walking. He's the Michael Myers. He is the unstoppable force and not in the sense of brute strength, but in just. Right. Finality. Um, inevitability right you don't even really get a sense of how much time has passed between when Llewellyn dies and Anton comes and visits right um, his wife right and he's obviously he's healed his leg wound at this point so you know significant time has passed it seems like she's living in a different place she just had to bury her mom who died from cancer and it's easy enough for him to get there. Uh, he, he knows uh, via records, and and the the Mexican agents uh, are are savvy enough to find things out too. It's how they find um, Llewellyn. Is that oh, that one throwaway? The grand that his mother in law does him in because mm-hmm. you know all she says is like, "Oh, we're going to El Paso." That is the that is the thing that Llewellyn is so careful, but that is the thing that gives him away and lets the the yeah. cartel know where he is. I'm I'm gonna say it's nice when our heroes are fallible, um, and, but it, even to call him a hero is maybe a stretch because I think he's he's supposed to be uh, just a guy, and uh, we we do learn that he's not quite on the same level as uh, Sugar and uh, as Carson, but then we get a. He's on the phone with Sugar, 
and he says, I'm not just going to let this go. I've decided to make you a special project of mine. Yes, I loved that. That was such a cool, like, this kind of, like, underneath, like, I can be the same animal that you can, that you are, right? Like... Um, and you know, my favorite part about that is it never comes to pass. Nope. We are robbed that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we already have the sense that it would be a very even fight because during their clash earlier, they both wound each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Anton does not move away from that unscathed. Um, and it's this cool, you have this setup once again, back to that kind of theme of how all the the you know classic westerns ended the final the the shootout at high noon or the you know the mexican standoff everyone's pointing their guns at each other yeah right and they completely subvert that they set you up for the idea they set the location like i'm gonna meet you there like it's like okay but i'm coming for you actually right yeah mm -hmm. in the end it's the world that takes him yeah. It's not the clash that I think we did desire. Did you find yourself like kind of yearning for that kind of showdown, Brian? I'm ticked off that I was I was robbed of even seeing the the final shootout that he was involved in. Right. No, I love that. I mean, yes. And I think the point of the film is you're supposed to be ticked off that you don't get that payoff, right? Because, I mean, that's the whole thing. We're watching this great contest of champions, and then what undoes him? An errant word from his mother-in-law that leads to him dying off screen. <laughs> you don't want to see Ajax, Hector, or Achilles uh, go down from three scrubs. You want them to fight each other, and you're right, we are robbed of that. I, I think I would put it that I wish that the DVD had a special feature. <laughs> of the shootout or you know what i mean like i get i 100 percent agree why it's not in the movie but that doesn't change the fact that i still want to watch a good action scene <laughs> right absolutely yeah yeah um so we do get that shootout at night and i i want to bring up just even just briefly we get a lot of bright sunny day texas mm -hmm. which is bright almost you almost squint at the tv like oh it's bright out today um, something I noticed is, uh, only, I, th I think only one character wears sunglasses in this movie and it's kind of the border patrol agent, uh, right. is wearing some aviators. Right. Who makes those hats. decisions? I do. <laughs> we have some like, uh, cool imagery with, you know, wearing the hats, uh, but we also get this, this shootout at night. And I think all of the night scenes in this movie look incredible. The, 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 even when you're in, when you're in the city. Or when you're in the fields, uh, it's it's just really well done. A lot of dawn scenes as well, uh, like when light is breaking. Urban movies versus like country movies. We're mostly in the country, but occasionally when you're in a city landscape, this is uh, beautifully shot. But the the scenes where there's firearms involved, we have Llewellyn with his shotgun that he saws off. And uh, puts the duct tape around the handle, and then we've got Shigur with his arsenal. So one of the one of the first things I noticed early on, right? What is the first weapon that Llewellyn is using? He's using a very classic hunting rifle, right? Mm -hmm. And then what does he go and encounter of all the cartel members? Of you know, at this point in the movie, you're not sure whether or not 
Llewellyn is necessarily a good person, but he is set up as a protagonist, right? Yeah. Um, and so a, a huge theme in a lot of, you know, the, the Western movies like this is, you know, the gun being the extension of the person, you know, the, the lawman and his six iron, right? It's a, it's a, a, a very large trope. And so you see one character with this hunting rifle, and then he scavenges from the cartel members machine guns you see him stepping over like ak-47s mm-hmm. he ends up taking a colt 45 from the body and then you have tommy lee jones character the old one he has a very simple gun a simple handgun and then you have this very alien anton right with these very unknowable motivations and what weapons does he use purely non-conventional ones he does not have the he is not the traditional western shooter he does not have the six iron he does not have the more modern weapons he doesn't have your automatic rifles and stuff like that he is something completely foreign and to the point where it's like it's foreignness is a plot point yeah you know to, uh, and you know once again to show off tommy lee jones character's disconnection from the future or his inability to like keep up is him puzzling over this weapon. So it's really interesting to kind of see the men's ideals uh, personified, exemplified by their choice of weaponry, where Llewellyn will take whatever he can. He's a, he's a scrapper. He, he adapts. He has mm-hmm. his kind of old-school weapons, but he's sh- certainly not against using and picking up and wielding <laughs> yeah. these more modern he's running weapons, and right? You know, I will say there is a, like, uh, Anton uses the, uh, the bolt, uh, the uh, compressed air bolt. Uh, he also uses, I would say his, uh, the, it's, it's a squeezing sound. Yeah, the weird the, the, silence. The modern silencer or suppressor on that shotgun mm-hmm. that he carries, and Anton says it, uh, you pick the one right tool. And he uses the compressed air tool for when he needs to, and he uses when he needs to be efficient in clearing a room. Uh, he takes out uh, three guys in the motel ambush with that shotgun, and then in that shootout scene, these guys are careful um, about how like the, around corners. And L- Llewellyn gets into that one uh, truck, and that guy doesn't even have a chance to say a word, word before. before you- Anton snipes him. Yeah. And that cannot be that same weapon. Brian, would you agree that that could not be that same silent shotgun? I battled with this for a long time. I don't actually think it's a shotgun. I think it does. I I think that it is almost like a, a large caliber rifle built on a shotgun chassis of some sort. Like it doesn't, I, you never see him pump it. So I don't right. think it's a traditional I, I think it's just a high powered rifle that he has repurposed and he's just good enough to use it from the hip at times, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well and that I mean and that even adds to the ambiguity of not even un- truly being able to pin down what weapon he uses just speaks more to this, <laughs> right. this mythic character right this unknowable (laughs) thing it has his weapon that can seem to kill indiscriminately you know at whatever range he decides and also the death that said weapon deals is always gruesome 
um, it's, it's, it's the brutal. Impact. Yeah, yeah, that is not replicated when you see other, you know, guns fired. Right, you know, when Llewellyn hits with a shot-off shotgun, it doesn't make that crazy impact and that crazy noise. And like, mm-hmm. oh man, the, I think the one that sticks out the most in my mind is when Shigur busts into the hotel room where the two Mexican guys, or the three, because the three. there's the one there's hiding the one in, in the, the shower, shower right? But that first guy he shoots, he like blows his like wrist off and then gets him <laughs> in the throat, right? The big money yeah. bit of factor. When he goes and kills him, gets him in the throat and he bleeds and he's gurgling out, right? I almost thought like, that was the closest thing to sugar making a mistake is that he probably wanted him to be able to talk a little bit but instead he shot him in yeah. a way that he was unable to speak mm-hmm. um as steven root bleeds out yeah so uh he, he has th- this th- i like how you described him as alien almost because he is i think when i watched it with my dad he said something like who is this killer with the neil diamond haircut uh just this kind of he's wearing a strange uh, like his clothes seem normal, but like when he he has to cut his pants off when he's wounded, and like it seems like a strange outfit. Um, he also is not uninjurable. Uh, he right. has to stage a car explosion to break into the pharmacy to get his antiseptic and uh, and uh, Novocaine or whatever it is that that he numbs himself with. You mentioned that he had to make a cast for his uh, broken arm later in the movie. So he knows he's human, right? But the way that he operates is cool, collected. It seems almost inhuman. And and now that we mentioned the weapons, I realize you never see Carson Wells wield a weapon at all. At all, he well, was able to track down Llewellyn, and yeah, it took me three hours. Mm-hmm. Thanks to uh, our friend Google, Anton Sugar uses a sound suppressed Remington Model 1187 semi-auto shotgun with a short barrel and four shooting scenes in the movie. As with many other firearms, the gun is also anachronistic because Remington 1187 was not designed until 1987 and the film takes place in, in 1980. The early 80s. So, there you um, go. The one thing I wanted to bring up was this movie is eerily quiet that was yes i wanted to go back to the fight scene and talk about that but yeah Yeah, well i was just gonna say that um the first time i noticed the sound is sort of this ramp up almost low ringing in your head right before the clerk guesses correctly as to what side of the coin it is before it goes away I would normally say if there was a formula for a movie I enjoy or a movie that I, you know, feels like deserves a lot of accolades, a, a great score would be part of it. And we're just mostly quiet in this movie. What did you want to say about that? Well, also? which I think is amazing. I mean, whoever did the sound work on this movie or the lack thereof, right, um, did an excellent job of, and, and y'all were kind of talking earlier about like the day and the night scenes right yeah and i almost i want to go back and watch the movie because i have an inkling about this i don't know if it's true but i feel like almost during all the night scenes there's no background anything and it is just the and then during that entire fight scene in that chase when he's found at the hotel you have the beeping of the transponder yeah beeping faster and faster and faster almost like the jaws theme right yeah um as he's creeping by 
and uh, Llewellyn's trying to retrieve the case and, uh, and and be very like sneaky and it's like sharks prowling in the water and then silence. You notice and that then, Shigur takes his shoes off. Yes. To be complete. the silent predator. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. The sound that is not music is so important. The heavy breathing, the sound of glass breaking, that very familiar like of the of his shotgun matters more because there is no like like yeah. heist music because it's not a heist it's a it's it's the getaway of the heist it's the it's the chase after which it kind of brings us around to how it was brought up is um is it gonna be successful and in the end this world wins no nobody this drug deal that Llewellyn and uh, Shiger and Carson Wells that were they were not part of it. Uh, this world eats everyone up, and Anton nearly gets brought down by a stray car wreck. Yeah, exactly. What a beautiful, poignant ending uh, to really underscore the idea of uncaring death. Right, where yeah. it's like even nope. the mighty, even the, the almost the symbol of death. This entire movie can just be brought low by random chance, and so many of the small things that cascade into the character's death start from such innocuous. They're so careful and they're so meticulous with so many other things, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get hit by a car, <laughs> and you're so careful and you're so meticulous, and in, then in your mother-in-law something... says one thing at the wrong time. Right. Yeah. If something um, random like that happened in other movies, it might just be seen like that's cheap. Yes. And I don't feel that anything we were presented was discounted at all. And I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I think the movie gets away with it in other movies of that era in similar fashion due to those slow plods is something we brought up earlier, which is the slow takes, right? The long shots that linger on things. And the fact that it's doing that. And it makes the audience feel like, oh, the the movie's giving me a clue. One of the first things I wrote is that you see very slowly in the beginning that Llewellyn, he he hits the pronghorn, but he only wounds it, so it goes running off, and he's upset, right? And you very slowly see him pick up the empty bully casing from that shot that didn't do what he was supposed to do, puts it in his pocket, and I write down, bullet casing important? Question mark. <laughs> and it never was, right? And the movie does that a lot. But because it gets you into this mental mode, it almost doesn't feel like a cop-out that these innocuous things blow up into so much more because it's been teasing you by showing you so many innocuous things throughout the film. It shows us that he knows what he's doing. Um, and speaking of teasing, I know that uh, Brian said we brought up his best shot, but I guess it's about that time to talk about more of our bests. Time for our superlatives. Matt, who is the MVP of this movie? I mean, there's a reason it got so many accolades. That's a really hard one to pick. I guess, think about it. Brian, who's your MVP? Uh, my MVP for this is the Coens. I'm, I'm a huge fan of their films, and this is basically the apex of what they've done. I look, I know I've, I've got a lot of friends who are Fargo fans and that movie was excellent too, but this was, this was the top so far for me. 
Yeah, uh, I'm also a huge Coen Brothers fan, um, and I, I will say that I had a feeling one of you would pick them. So I actually went with Josh Brolin here, uh, though it might be hard to have him as whether he's the main character or not. I just think he plays a convincing, careful guy who you root for to succeed. Uh, yes, we are robbed of a cool showdown with anyone. Instead, you find him dead. Uh, Sheriff Ed Tom finds him dead. Uh, I had written down that uh, he plays short-term careful, long-term reckless well. And only his performance led me to that description. Um, so while I think oh, there's a lot of accolades that everyone deserves, uh, I think Josh Brolin deserves it for this. And I I'm happy to see that his career has, it, although it was already successful at this time, like really taken off since then. It is also weird to think that was 16 years ago. Um, right. Have you decided your MVP you know, I'm probably going to have to go with the Coen brothers as well. Yep. Well, that's something I was considering about saying. But as a big McCarthy fan and a, a scholar of the Southwest, their ability to adapt the his his novel into a movie so well that I could see moments in the movie. It was like, that was such a McCarthy thing right there. Without having read the book... Knowing the author and knowing how he operates, um, I mean the final the final narration, right? Tommy Lee Jones telling the two stories: one he doesn't remember, and then the one of his father going ahead and lighting the way and waiting for him, and just ending with this weird kind of mythic story that calls into the minds these concepts of like Ubisoft, which isn't a thing we really got into but Ubisoft is the idea it, it it means where are those who went before us mm. and the i think the film circles that a whole lot with the opening narration and talking about all the past sheriffs and it constantly surrounds toby lee jones character who is sitting in the shadows of anton and is sitting in the same places that both of these other men that he's pursuing are and he's watching, you know, he goes and he talks to Ellis and he hears about more of the men who came before them and the world that they faced. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the credit to the yeah, Coens. Yeah, so credit to the Coens for really being able to bring that to life, man. Which I'm more than willing to give to. Brian, who's your best supporting actor? So for supporting on this, I went with Tommy Lee Jones. I, I feel like if I were, I could make a point for any of these characters being right. a main character. So... I think that if I were devil's advocate and I was going to make the point for Tommy Lee Jones being the main character is he encompasses what the movie's about, about how, you know, growing escalations and how it's not a place that, you know, once you lose your edge or possibly lose your edge, it's still a place for you and his aparts. And I, I really think of them as aparts. You have this main chase that's happening between Brolin and Anton, and you have Tommy Lee Jones trying to pick up, you know, the breadcrumbs as it goes. He's he's like the control factor for this, and the story's being told about him without being told about him. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of of kind of describing that his support is kind of almost what Matt said earlier, like audience proxy, like oh, we're, yeah. we're kind of following along. Matt, who's your best supporting actor? Kelly McDonald. As as Carla Jean. Yes. 
Um, and the reason I say so, she truly is the supporting actor, as in she is the one who has talked to all three of the main characters that oh. circle around each other, right? Of course, she talks to Llewellyn a lot. She has her final conversation with Antoine, and she talks with um, Ed. Ed Tom, yeah. Yeah, Ed Tom. Um, she is the support in the sense where she's kind of like the one character who is able to tie all is the only one who's able to tie the three together right, right. yeah that's a good that, that makes it a good candidate one of the things that's hard for me with best supporting actor i'm going to go with javier bardem here as anton chigurh is that sometimes it's hard for me to uh separate a best written character and best actor from best like acting performance yeah and yeah. i'm going to say with uh, javier bardem his lion delivery of these to me, iconic quotes now, things that I say to friends that I know like the movie, you know, whether it's uh, what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss, um, you know, you should admit your position, there would be more dignity be, in Oh it. my god. Uh, and and uh, he does, his eyes are red like he's tired, but also acutely aware, like he sees more than what he should see. And then, uh, I mean, and it's just kind of written that way, too. So while credit should go to the, how they wrote the character, I think his uh, portrayal was also great. Oh, best performance-wise, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what's your hidden gem of this movie? Uh, so I, I went funny on this one. My hidden gem is uh, um, Stephen Root. Uh, he's yeah. he, he, the man who hires Carson. Like, I I hate pigeonholing supporting like low level supporting actors in this way but every time i see him in anything i'm just thinking have you seen my stapler stapler yeah i i, <laughs> I used wing line. I, I i used to have the office in the corner and i could see the squirrels and they were married like i just i it's and i hate being like that because he's done some great parts he actually plays you know some fairly terrifying villains and in, in in other things and uh yeah, I don't know. I just uh, I I like seeing him and stuff, even though that pops into my head when I do see him. But it shows a great range, you know. Like here, he's you know he's some big bad guy, and then you have him playing. You know, obviously the party has an office space, so he has you know dynamic yeah. range. So I don't know. Just hats off to him. Yeah. Uh, hey, can you validate my parking uh, yeah. attempt at humor? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> you would expect him in other roles to be the guy that asks the silly question. Instead, he right. is no straight laced. Mm -hmm. uh, who's your hidden gem, Matt? I think my hidden gem is going to be Ellis. When, yeah, who kind of he does give us the history of like this is a violent place. Um, he was shot down in his doorstep. Right. Um, and I, I I like him, you know, invoking the names of Ed Tom's like family members and talking about them. It's like, oh, I'm sending your uncle's you know, weapons off to be up in the museum. The, yeah, right? the Ranger, the Ranger Museum. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is. And then, of course, you know, I, I also love the scene because they're able to squeeze, uh, squeeze in a mention of Indians, which didn't happen in the whole movie. It's like, oh, there's another Cormac McCarthy checkpoint. Thank you for, uh, thank <laughs> you for hitting that, Cohen Brothers. Thank you. Yeah. Um, surprised you didn't say Anasazi. Um, but it's. It, 
it does a great job of establishing the mythos that Ed Tom is levying himself against when he decides to retire, right? Um, it, it establishes that it's almost in his blood, right? And, and is almost in a harsh contrast to the beginning narration when he's talking about it's like, I think my father might be proud of me. I know why I was. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about them both being sheriffs at the same time. And he also mentions it like, uh, well, Ed Tom mentions it like, I saw my father in front of me, but I'm 20 years older than he ever was. So he's the younger man. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and you know, that that's a cool, that's a cool hidden gem. Uh, he's not in the movie for very much. Um, I'm not going to say that uh, he's a flattened character, but the world is heavy and hard. And when it says it's no country for old men, is that you eventually you'll flatten out to where you can fit on a sandwich. Well, and he's kind of a wretched guy, right? He's living in a shack <laughs> right. with more cats than he... He can't count all of the cats he has. Yeah. Drinking coffee that never truly ends. He just makes a new one a week, whether there's something in her or not. Like, it's a hovel. Yeah. Like, this is... This supposedly heroic figure, right? Since uh-huh. he's talking about all these others, you assume that he too was once a great sheriff. And, and look at him. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll even toss in that I'm a big fan of Barry Corbin anyway. This isn't even his first movie with Tommy Lee Jones. He was in it with um, In the Valley of Eli. This guy used to do voices for the video game Command and Conquer. Um what? He he was the he was the the horse vet in the ranch with Ashton Kutcher and Sam Elliott. He's hilarious mm. in that. Um, and then of course he was you know he he probably had his most notable part in uh, the uh, early '90s comedy uh, Northern Exposure. Another good candidate for a hidden gem is that uh, if you are familiar with him, to see him even in a small role, very nice. Sort of the way that like Stephen Root kind of filled that role. Right. Uh, for for me, it's uh, Garrett Dillahunt as our deputy Wendell. He has a purpose as being Ed Tom's help, the person he communicates with the most. He is excitable. Uh, he's he is not dull. He's not you know he's not stupid, but he's green and uh, just. I think one of the things I've quoted the most uh, from this movie is, "Oh, Sheriff, we just missed him." Uh, like he's he's so ready to to solve this thing, but uh, he he is certainly not ready for this world. And eventually, maybe the world won't be the same, and he won't get flattened. But he he's not quite there yet. But I I, I really liked his performance, Brian. This is a tough one. You have to recast someone in this movie. Oh, I so I so mailed this one in. Like in such sure. a bad way. I, I I basically went through the top, you know, 10 to 15 build and I was like, I don't. You I'm don't just, want to. I, yeah, I, I basically just rolled the dice and went with somebody. So my out of the air was I was going to recast Tess Harper, who's Tom's wife with Francis McDormand. Um, I had recently watched. Uh, a favorite of the Coen brothers. Yeah, so I was just like, yeah, I had recently watched Nomadland, and I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually going to speak out of turn and follow you up. Is I, I, I kind of rolled the dice too, and and I and I went with uh, Amanda Seyfried instead of Kelly McDonald as Carla Jean. I, I think it, it works okay, but I don't really want to recast her. But it was just an idea of someone who maybe is a little more recognizable. That's essentially it. 
Matt, who would you recast? Or like, I mean, this is gun to your head here, but like, no, this is a. I know who I would want to see in this movie. Okay, but it's tough to say that there was any role that I would want to release. So the person I want to right. see in this movie because I think it'd be fascinating. I think they do will. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, I think it'd be interesting. And honestly, who he while Woody Harrelson was a pleasant surprise. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Wells would have been fascinating, yeah, right? I mean, and I think he could have brought that same kind of energy to it. But then it almost would have been more heartbreaking the way that he dies, right? You don't want to see that. Brian and I did Almost Famous a month ago. Brian, what do you want to say about this recast? I, I Honestly, I would see him more as the man in the, in the tower, like I could oh, see him uh, oh, the, being yeah, behind that desk, I really yeah. a joke. And that like, as well, yeah. Kind, kind, kind of channeling the same character that he was in Mission Impossible Three, just that mm. very dry, smooth criminal kind of piece. Yeah, very smooth, and the most memorable thing from like I, I think I, I don't rewatch the Mission Impossible movies, but but that's that's one that I thought his performance stood out. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the shots. I think y- you did reveal earlier, uh, Brian, but uh, describe your best shot again. Uh, my best shot is Anton working out of the cuffs behind the officer where he's all out of focus until he comes up and strangles him. That is so menacing. I, it's just, just every part of it, like as an audience, it's meant to put you, you know, unease and, and, and it's just so full of like it, it just the way they shoot it the the way that he is out of focus but you still know exactly what he's doing i i just love it it was such a great shot it's a great shot you know um i wanted to bring up about that shot that uh after he strangles him they they do a shot from the ceiling and you can see hundreds of scuff, scuff marks mar- yes Oh, and then the sound during that part as well. You just hear the grunting of men struggling and the constant screech, screech, screech of of, (laughs) of boots making those scuffs. Yeah, what a a fantastic scene. And, you know, something to say on that just very briefly, and this is just my perspective of having not seen it, but I almost knew that was going to happen. And I'm curious, was him murdering the deputy much more of a gut punch, like shock? To y'all as it was to me, because I almost just expected it immediately, right? Because I had heard so much about the movie, heard about uh, uh, Bardeen playing this menacing, crazy, like, killer. Um, And then just hearing the deputy be like, oh, yeah, I got it taken care of. I was like, you're dead. Like, almost in a (laughs) classic, like, horror movie style. It's just like, oh, you're about to die. Like, yeah. Yeah, sometimes uh, when when you know a movie, it's easy to look at the first fifteen minutes and shuffle things around and think like, could that have been? Once you've seen it, but uh, when you're coming from a place where you haven't seen it before, I think I think the main thing it does is it just it shows you the lengths and the ease to which he hits those lengths that he takes. Oh yeah, Matt, what is yours? Straight up the opening, the classic, classic John Ford shot of the opening of the desert, right? Um, I I love it. I adored it in such a... It sets the tone of the film very well where the Coen brothers are like, this is going to be an homage. This is a Western, and this will be an homage to Western. And here is a classic John Ford, like The Searchers and all of that, you know, all the John Wayne movies and stuff, like those shots 
of the beautiful, you know, the the monument valleys and the in the dunes and the open desert, right? And yeah, we've done a couple westerns on this show, and uh, you get the you get some awesome shots like that in Silverado. But one of the things that I think I found uh, lacking in the Quick and the Dead, uh, it didn't have as many of those expansive shots, which I would have, which are always wonderful to witness. Uh, my best shot is uh, when Llewellyn wakes up in Mexico to the mariachi band singing at him. It's dawn, and uh, the band is singing, and then he sh- he shifts a little bit to show the blood on his shirt, and they immediately stop. And uh, Llewellyn reaches up with a $100 bill, a bloody, crumpled $100 bill just says Medico. And they do a, a, another classic shot of the silhouette of the wounded man reaching up, the singer is taking the money, and behind it, a wonderful sun rising, and, but it's still dark out, so you see the church uh, lit from the ground. Absolutely something that I didn't pay attention to in previous viewings, but if you had a best shot or stunning shot scavenger hunt to watch this movie, that would be one of 30 that are just incredible shots. Yeah. Very, very Michelangelo. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, unfortunately, this film is so many, right? Unfortunately. This film, this film mm-hmm. was definitely, and from a cinematic standpoint, was gorgeous. I mean, you know, how they lined up all the shots of looking into the mirror of the, looking into the turned off television and seeing the reflection of themselves. Yeah. Like sitting the outside, there with the mirror. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, what about your best scene, Brian? My best scene was uh, hands down him talking to the gas station attendant. Like so that good. that verbal word play and just basically he's throwing brilliance up against the wall and it's just not sticking <laughs> at all. And it's the part of that I like too. And it, I don't know. It was just it's such a fun scene. Uh, yeah, it's amazing, and it almost gives you the sense that. You know, Anton almost thinks himself as the the unappreciated genius, right? Yeah, right. Uh, that he does have that degree of separation from us mortals, right? The the innocuous small talk. You getting any rain up that way? What way would that be, friendo? Uh, oh, I just saw you were from down. Like he's just trying to be make a- small talk. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. making small talk. Yeah, I love that scene. I love the serpentine belt behind him. There's pats on the wall. Everything seems so period. I got to say, as much as I love that scene, there's a... (laughs) This is the only continuity thing I've noticed is uh, uh, inside the (laughs) convenience store, they have like modern Jack Link's beef jerky behind (laughs) the sugar. And I'm like, I know that packaging. That's modern packaging. Uh, so, but but uh, I'm willing to I'm willing to overlook it for how great that scene was. Matt, what was your best scene? That's a tough one. <laughs> These are all tough. Yeah, I mean, it was it really it is a fantastic movie. I think the the moment where you first get to see um, Ed Tom's deduction at work right when he goes to the trailer and he's trying to puzzle out what has happened with the lock he sees that they fled the coop he knows he's the third person to arrive um and he sits down and he says a line about llewellyn and and this is probably my favorite line for the whole movie where uh 
it's it's I can't remember the exact quoting of it, but where he's basically being like, I'm seeing the same things that Llewellyn has and I'm scared, right? Like he's 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 frightened and he's like Llewellyn should probably be frightened too. Like certainly like, has made an impression same. on me. Yes, right. certainly has made an impression. Yes. And like the, it just speaks to the whole movie of you're trying to see these different perspectives and i almost don't want to say ships passing in the night because they are aware of each other it's more like submarines hunting for each other in the vast ocean right and they yeah never, they never truly cross paths but the threat is there absolutely um, so yeah i mean that scene has a good dry tommy lee jones comedic moment it has the sheriff having his kind of comedic moment but then also builds up this foreboding and sets the tone of like and, and we're a couple of steps closer on the chase. Right. My my best scene is Carson and Sugar in his hotel room when he's caught. He got him. You should admit your position to be more dignity in it. You know, I, I know where the case is going to be. Uh, and I'd mentioned this to Matt before we started recording, but when the phone rings in that scene, what you see is Carson Wells, a man who does not flinch, flinches because... He believes, oh, I'm dead now. Mm -hmm. And three seconds later, he is killed. But just sort of seeing these, these two are the ones who are closest to superhuman or alien or just different, part of a different world. And they are communicating to one another. And they knew each other before. Hello, Carson. Yeah. They did know each other. Well, and then Wells immediately knowing the jig is up. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that is a phenomenal scene that maybe that'll replace mine i don't know well let's let's go to something on a slightly smaller scale brian what is your best wardrobe or makeup moment i'd say that my favorite wardrobe piece is we've actually touched on this too was the dichotomy between wells and anton and you know just this this black knight white knight kind of piece i'll also say that there's something that works with tommy lee jones in a cowboy hat like it just—it's like it's like it belongs there. I put on a Stetson and I look ridiculous. <laughs> and then you see someone like Tommy Lee Jones, like man, they just made those hats for you, didn't they? <laughs> right. So, yep, he seems like authority while wearing that hat. Uh, Matt, what's your best wardrobe or makeup moment? The moment when he crosses back over the border <laughs> yeah. and the guy asks, "Is like how the boots treating you?" And he's like. Well, I need, I need the rest. Yeah, it is just like, I love that. And then the uh, it's like, you get a lot of men show up like half naked. And he's like, nope. yeah, <laughs> and that's all he says. And he rolls with it. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a good wardrobe moment. I was actually thinking about when he uh, offers $500 for the kid's jacket. Yeah, for the jacket. Yeah. Like, uh, um, I, I, Mine is actually, it, it's funny. All, all three of ours are kind of connected. Mine is uh, Carson Wells' suit with his absurdly large collar. Um, yeah. Which was kind of more of a 70s thing, but he's still wearing it this way. Also, his suit jacket is very Western, um, the way that uh, it, I, I think I think it's a great uh, outfit choice for him. I thought it was very um, kingpin. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. I, I see that too. Brian, you have to change one thing about this movie. What would it be? Uh, you know, I, 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 I want to see Lewin's Last Stand. I do. I have it. Or, I'm down. sorry, Llewellyn. I have it written down that this is mine too. I want to see Llewellyn beat up a couple of thugs or something. Show show his yeah. prowess. Yeah, I'm, I'm I wanted to see I the last thing. Pleasant. 
I'm not trying to ruin the integrity of the movie. Like I said, I'd be fine with it being like a special feature or something, but I still want to see it. Yeah, so we have essentially the same one. Uh, Matt, what's your change one thing? I think mine's in the similar vein where at some point how I pictured the movie coming to an end was Anton Llewellyn have their showdown. Tommy Lee Jones is close behind. Uh, Anton kills Llewellyn, but is wounded, and Tommy Lee Jones, uh, you know, executes Anton, right? Okay. He finally catches up, and he's too late. Everyone else is dead. Brian's got a peculiar look. Uh, what are you saying about this? I like that, actually. No, I, I, I think it's against the spirit of the movie to have yes. that resolution. I yes. think it would be to a detriment to the movie, and I think wanting to see that or envisioning that just speaks volumes to the unsettling feeling the movie leaves you with. It leaves you with a little bit of an... Uh, you're satisfied at how unsatisfactory the film is, right? Because it specifically subverts your expectations to make you feel uncomfortable. I feel like that's an acquired skill to be satisfied with unsatisfaction. Brian, did you have one last thing to say about that? Yeah, I uh, I kind of toyed around with the idea of representing... The three main characters of this is rock, paper, scissors. And that being oh, yeah. that, that being the culmination to this is like each of the each of them have an aspect to them that, that makes them, you know, uh, uh, a weakness to another and also a strength against another. So it it, it kind of was one of those things I was I was kind of going to ride with. But it just like you said, I, th- I feel like it would damage the the fabric of the film to to suggest that they end up having this. He kills him, but he kills them, and maybe so and so is mortally wounded. Right. Well, it, it, the first thing that came to mind, I didn't think about this before, but um, there's a reason why we like our heroes to have a rogues gallery, and why like we like a showdown at the end of the comic book, but then they just go to jail so that we can do it again next episode or next issue. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we're looking at these characters as, do we want to see, well, we did see one showdown in a dark alley streets and there's casualties and there's car crashes. And then we're kind of waiting for it more and we don't get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, what's the best quote of the movie? Uh, I, this, is, this is a Tommy Lee Jones one. I still love it. Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? Well, if it ain't, It'll do It'll until do the mess gets here. Gets here. <laughs> I love that. That's like that's that's the that's the goods right there. That's it's the so goods. Good. Yep, it's very good, Matt. What's yours? If the rule you followed brought you here, then what good was that rule? I think that's a great, especially with you know these two kind of professionals, and you know. Uh, he he Wells even mentions that it's like he has you know it's like Anton has like principles or he has some he he has rules that he follows he has some system in his head um while we might not know it it's there and so the the clash of these two uh rules right you know two men who have principled lives and are these badasses it's another thing where it's like uh there's whatever these rules are or whatever this world operates by we don't know it yeah and I'm happy not knowing it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my, my best quote is up in the office of the man in the skyscraper uh, who's saying something along the lines of, 
I understand that you know Anton Chigurh by sight. Did I ask you to sit? And Carson responds, No, you just strike me as a man who wouldn't want to waste a chair. Uh, it is time to rate this Oscar winner from 2007. Brian, what's your rating? Uh, here we do a uh, 0 to 5 scale. Uh, we do half-star increments. Brian, what are you rating this movie? You know, it's it's it, it's just a, a show that we've really upped our game this year but this is my second five star of our our new year so i gave this full full broadside yeah and uh it it is i feel like being able to withhold five stars from movies you like we have upped our game this year Uh, i've been pleased for the first three months certainly if i haven't gushed enough i'm gonna go ahead and say i give it a five star rating too I definitely let it spill that I've watched this movie 30 times, and the reason is because it's incredible. Uh, I don't really have much else to say that I haven't already said, uh, and that wouldn't warrant another two hours of this show. Uh, Matt, what are you going to rate this movie? Oh, five stars, baby. This is- <laughs> um, it's it's hard to dispute. Um, I mean, from just within the vacuum, the movie itself, but as an excellent screenplay adaptation of a book i you just it's rare you get to see a movie where one artist captures another artist's vision and vibe uh so strongly especially across mediums so it's it's uh it's incredible it's a great film i i normally really like i put the oscar for best original screenplay like on a pedestal among other oscars uh, but like best adapted screenplay, which this one was nominated for, mirroring what you just said, Matt, is this is this is great, uh, and we know that it wasn't, it didn't divert from the original text that much at all. Um, I just want to end as far as our ratings and recommendations. I think it's like in the second or third paragraph on Wikipedia, you'll see that this movie is in more critics' top ten than any other movie. So there's a reason we all rated it high. I was actually surprised to see that like the Rotten Tomatoes score of 93 and 87. That's low. 87 did feel oddly low. It seems low. Uh, So, wow, 15 stars out of 15 stars from these three. Uh, You know, Russell sometimes says when he introduces me, he goes, from deep in the heart of Texas. But what he doesn't realize is I'm from Sevierville, Tennessee. And you know who else is from Sevierville, Tennessee? Dolly Parton. It is time to select our movie for next week, and all three of these are from the fantastic Miss Dolly Parton. Brian, are you ready to help me choose a movie for next week? Let's do it. Option number one, Steel Magnolias from 1989. A young beautician, newly arrived in a small Louisiana town, finds work at the local salon where a small group of women share a close bond of friendship and welcome her into the fold. Option number two, Nine to Five from 1980. Three female employees of a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot find a way to turn the tables on him. And, uh, hey, kids, cover your ears for this one for a second. Earmuffs. Option three, the best little whorehouse in Texas from 1982. A town's sheriff and regular patron of historical brothel fights to keep it running when a television reporter targets it as the devil's playhouse. What are we going to choose, Brian? I feel like nine to five is the way to go on this one. Nine to five is the way to go. And that's what we're going to do next week. Uh, Before we say goodbye, I want to say a huge thank you to Mr. Matt Kirker. Thanks for joining. 
Hey, no, thank you for uh, giving me a platform to say words. I like to do that. <laughs> and we were just all excited all day. And I also want to say thank you to all of the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Hey, producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian? You know, early Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they didn't believe in all the gods. I mean, that's what atheism is, really. It's the belief in one less god than you. <laughs>